Take your Bibles, if you would, today and turn to Luke chapter 9. The disciples were slow learners. And uh, really, probably didn't get their act together until after the Lord's resurrection. And really, Luke chapter 9 is kind of a list of a litany of their failures in so many ways. And here we see one spotlighted towards the end of this chapter. And in verse number 51 of the Gospel of Luke, we see this um, failure of disappointment, no doubt to the heart of the Lord, that we don't want to be guilty of emulating or repeating. And the Bible says that it came to pass when the time was come that he, speaking of Jesus, should be received up. And he, Jesus, steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messengers before his face. And they went and entered into a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. And they did this, the Bible says, uh, and they did not receive him because his face was as though he would go to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, wilt thou that we command fire to come down from heavens and consume them, even as Elias did? But the Bible says, but he, Jesus, turned and rebuked them and said, you know not what manner of spirit you are of. Now, I want you to listen to these, these words. For the Son of Man is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so very much for this day. And Lord, I'm, I'm just grateful for the opportunity to be back. Lord, what a privilege to be here at this pulpit, Lord, with these people. And Lord, we've all assembled here together. Lord, we, we, we do enjoy one another's fellowship. We, we love to be able to laugh together. Lord, the camaraderie here, Lord, it's just a help in life. Lord, to have this wonderful extended family is such a blessing. But Lord, above and beyond all these things, we, we really come, Lord, to look to you today. Lord, we understand that our objective as Christians is to grow into the likeness of our Savior. And Lord, like the disciples, we're, we're slow learners. And Lord, things that you want from us, we often fail to provide. And Lord, we struggle, Lord, sharing your spirit. But Lord, today, as we spend this time, this sacred time together, I, I pray, Lord, you'd give us a moment of introspection. And Lord, if, if we see in our lives a deviant line, Lord, a place where, where Lord, we're, we're just, our spirit's not right. Lord, I, I pray you'd help us to make a course correction of the heart today. And I ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. God bless you. You may be seated. Just to prove I'm not in the, the rut today, I left my notes on the front row. About halfway through the reading, I figured that out and had to fight the impulse to panic. <laughs> so I might have left it at home. I've often said and long believed that one of the greatest gifts that any one of us can possess is the gift of self-awareness. And y'all know what I mean by that, right? Self-awareness. Many of us, you know, probably have a degree of that, a measure of self-awareness. And, you know, we know what we look like in the mirror. We, we probably have an idea of our character. 
I think we all would like to believe that we know how other people perceive us. Um, but um, there's, there's another truth that runs parallel to that, or a truism, is that, you know, not only do we lack that often, but, you know, we, 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 we lack the gift of understanding how people, other, other people perceive us. We, we don't have self-awareness. My own life and observation of others has taught me and reinforced biblical truth that the heart is desperately wicked. And who can know it? And, and desperately liquid, wicked, yes, implies an evil, but it also just implies a deception. And that's what the, the phrase, who can know it, means. Like, well, there's just a, there's a part of us that we think we know, we think we understand, we, we think we can see, we look in the mirror, but there's, there's, there's a part of us that is less Christ-like than we want to admit or believe. The New Testament warns, be not deceived. Of course, God is not mocked. And the Bible tells us that we are not to be blind to the truth about ourselves, the world, and others. There are some remedies and help for self-deception that I have found over the years. And number one is just taking a few moments to take that long, hard look at the man in the mirror and ask yourself, is this the person I want to be? Is this the guy I'm supposed to be? Uh, after a failed effort or an apology is needed, Lord, ask the Lord for help to stop in that moment and maybe offer that. Another remedy is listening to the critique of others. Sometimes we don't have that right view of ourselves, and if we listen to other people, they might offer something to us that can be helpful, that might help us remedy a character flaw, an ethical failure. But I think most importantly, to avoid self-deception, we need to look at the Word of God, to read these pages, the text we're reading today, and to live in light of that examination. Now, unfortunately, coupled with our inability to see ourselves, actions, and attitudes as they really are, I think most of us, maybe not want to admit this, but most of us have the keen ability to, to diagnose and see other people's failures and weaknesses, however. Now, I'm not really good at admit admitting mine or seeing mine, but boy, I can sure see yours. And we're, we're good about that. We talk about that among ourselves maybe more than we ought to. And, and that's just a natural giftedness that... Unfortunately, most of us possess. Now, hinge to our proclivity to give ourselves a pass is also the propensity to be sensitive to other people's failures and weaknesses, and especially when those weaknesses are offensive to us. Well, this dynamic of self-deception and seeing other people's weaknesses is on full display in the text we're looking at this morning. There's an example and a truth here that merits our thoughtful consideration, that merits our attention. Jesus, at this point in his ministry, had carried out most of his earthly ministry. And as the Bible says, that he was on his way uh, to, to Jerusalem. This was, Jesus was on his way to the cross. Now, during the earthly ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, it, it carried him um, to all parts of Israel. And we know at least twice he crossed into the regions of Galilee. But to travel to Galilee, you had to do two things. You either had to travel through Samaria or you had to travel around Samaria, which is a much longer journey to do that. And of course, in our text, we're seeing here that Jesus is now traveling back from Galilee to Jerusalem. And he decided that he would go through the midst of Samaria. Now, for a second time, Jesus had chosen to make this journey. 
Now, there is angst and animosity between Jews and the Samaritans, as I, as I think most Bible students would know. And that angst lies in an ancient history. For much of Jewish history, Israel um, existed in two parts, two states, two nations. Uh, after King Rehoboam, the third king, the nation of Israel as a whole divided into two other nations. Uh, one to the north was Judah, and the other was uh, Israel. And in the course of time, Israel fell into captivity before Judah did, and they would in time. But they fell first to the Assyrians. And in that Assyrian captivity, many of the Jews were displaced to Assyria. They were dispersed abroad, but many stayed there and lived with their captors. Well, over the course of time, many of the Jewish people chose to intermarry with the Assyrians. The people still in Judah, the Jewish people still there, saw this as a grave of compromise, an incredible offense. And in times, they developed their own um, sarcastic term for them, Samaritans. And the Samaritans were held in great disdain by the Jews. And the Samaritans had, because of that, no love loss uh, for those people at all. And so there was this great angst that existed between them. Condemnation flowed from one direction and resentment from the other. Over the course of time, sometimes, it was rare, but sometimes, as Jewish travelers would travel from Jerusalem to Galilee through Samaria, on occasion, hospitality would be shown to them by the Samaritans. It wasn't always given, but leaving Jerusalem to them was seen as a good thing. But almost never when a Jew went back from Galilee to uh, Jerusalem and traveled through Samaria was hospitality really ever extended. It was it was, it was quite a rarity. It really shouldn't have been expected for the most part. They had no love lost for, for Jerusalem and people going there. They, they didn't care to help. Well, that was the case here in our text. Um, Jesus was on his way to go there. He was on his way to the cross and his disciples sought lodging for themselves and him on this journey back. And the Samaritans indignantly refused to help them in any way. They offered them no respite, uh, no help, no water, nothing, no lodging. It would be fair, it would be fair to say that that was a slight, that that was an offense. Uh, even though it was probably expected, they were probably thinking, don't you know who's with us? Don't you understand who Christ is? And their actions, the Samaritans, were probably perceived as they were intended as a slight and an offense. That's certainly how James and John saw that. They were wrong. Jesus was wrong. And their reaction was fairly typical of those inflicted by the human condition. Their pride was wounded. Well, how dare you refuse us? And their righteous indignation arose. <laughs> In a person they loved. Genuinely, truly. They loved Jesus. They wanted to defend his honor. They took up an offense that he did not, but they chose to. So in anger and self-righteousness, and I don't say that. I think they honestly thought that they were showing righteous indignation. They evoked the memory of Elijah who had twice called down fire. By the way, in the same region of Samaria, 
And they thought, well, if Elijah called down fire upon the Samaritans, uh, he did this upon the soldiers of Ahaziah. And of course, we know he did this on Mount Carmel. And so they're thinking, well, this great man Elijah did this, and maybe we should do. So they asked the Lord, Lord, would you that we call down fire upon that village? Um, they asked Jesus if this was okay. Now, I, I don't think they actually possess that power. I don't know what power Jesus granted them, but I don't think they actually possess that power. What I think they were probably hoping is to provoke Jesus to do that. It would be my guess. But Jesus' reply and response, as it often was, was not what they were expecting. <laughs> Look at me in verse 55. So they make this request. You know, and I'm sure they came to him aggressively. Lord, would you that we call down fire on these people? And the Bible says, but he turned. And the word in the Greek there has a little bit of an emphatic quality to it. It's not like that Jesus just turned. It's like what they said captured him and he turned. It's like an, it's like an aggressive about face. You've all seen that with parents and people, right? When they kind of aggressively turn. Like you did something wrong, like what? You know, there's this aggressive turn. And then the Bible says Jesus rebukes them. A rebuke. And he said, I'll paraphrase. Do you not comprehend? Do you still not understand? Do you not realize what manner of spirit you're of? Now, here's these two guys in self-righteousness, thinking they're honoring the Lord. He aggressively turns and says, what are you thinking? Do you even know who you are? Do you understand our mission for us? Do you, do you even begin to comprehend what being a Christian is all about and what it requires from you? That is not what they're expecting. Here in the context of another's wrong, the Samaritans, genuinely, truly, fair to say, it was a wrong. In that context of a genuine grievance, and all of us, you know, we, we know when we're genuinely grieved by someone else. Jesus chose to correct and rebuke the disciples and not the Samaritans. What was their problem? What's the failure? What's, 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 what's going on here? Why would Jesus rebuke these followers? Well, I think, first of all, we can find our answer is this. These men failed to understand their identity. Know you not what manner of spirit you are. That, that's a complicated phrase in a way. It's not easily interpreted. But it's like, don't you understand that the Holy Spirit lives inside of you? Don't you understand that what's supposed to flow from that Spirit is different than what you're showing right now? Can you not see that the intersection of what you're doing and who you're supposed to be is at odds? You have two things going in opposition to one another. This is not what my followers are supposed to be and do. 
can't you see, guys, that your spirit, your attitude, your reaction is out of sync with my own? How after all this time that you have walked with me, can you still not know my heart and mission? <laughs> and Jesus states that in the next verse. For the Son of Man is not come to destroy men's lives. And by the way, everything that you just asked me would destroy men's lives. Your behavior, your spirit, your conduct is destructive. Okay? Now we're going to begin to link some application here. And I think most of us can do that. A hateful, retaliatory attitude. Responding negatively to other people's offense even when legitimate, is destructive. Amen. Guys, don't do that. Yeah, as I reflected on this, and if you guys just would, you know, if you just take a moment and be fair to yourselves, you could do this too. As I reflected on this text, I recognized myself on every side of this equation. I have felt, and you have too, I have felt the judgment and ugliness of others directed towards me. I think it's a universal experience as a human, isn't it? We've all experienced someone else's derogatory comment, some slight, somebody said, some offense. We've all felt that pain directed at us. And then the ensuing impulse to defend myself. That strong impulse, well, that's not how it really is. Let me set the record straight. And often it's more than that. It's more than let me just set the record straight. You hurt me, so I'm going to take this opportunity occasion to see if I can't ding you as well. Right? Okay. We all know that. Those are called, you know, in the home, fights. We, we all know that. We, we, we know this impulse that James and John felt. I know this, with less reasons than the Samaritans had. I have been ungracious to other people. I have been the agitator and originator of offense. I've allowed the worldly man to display himself, and I've hurt people. And so I know that part. I've seen this third part. I've, I've stood apart and seen like Jesus has as an observer, that the anger of man never accomplishes the righteousness of God. And I have seen that reciprocating offense does nothing but destroy relationships and burns them down like firewood. I've watched relationships end in families and people become estranged. I've seen churches hurt and divided over offense. Because one, one person was right and the other person responded and then, of course, in time, nobody was right. I, I've watched person after person hurt themselves and other people in this cycle. I've seen people who, who, who were wrong truly and then they re responded in, in a wrong way themselves. And, they, and I guess when we do that, we think we gain something, but we all know we lose more than we gain when we fight this way. You know, and, and trying to get to some self-diagnosis here, how often under different circumstances, but similar dynamics, 
do you and I fail to respond constructively to someone else's attempt to hurt us? Intentional or unintentional? How many times have we allowed the world's spirit, our own selfish spirit, an angry spirit, a bitter spirit, a hurt and truly wounded spirit, guide and direct our words and deeds rather than the spirit of God? And we may be guilty of that on a weekly basis. Do we understand that that's something us humans just do too easily? You know, the text gives us a couple of clues in it when we're most likely to behave this way. And I think it's instructive to a church family, but most, in, most of all, I think it's instructive to Christians. I think we're most tempted to act this way when we are genuinely in the moment, in the right, and someone else is wrong. Okay? So I'm going about my life. And I'm just, I'm living it. And all of a sudden someone hurts me. And they're wrong. Truly wrong. Any jury at this point who saw it, yep, that person did the other guy wrong. In that moment, in that time, when I'm initially innocent, I, I, I get this feeling that it's okay then in self-righteousness to respond the way I'm about to respond. That somehow being the second offender is Okay. In the text, James and John didn't start the fight. They didn't. They didn't start the fight. They were just looking for a place to stay. They were just looking for a place to probably refresh the animals. They, just, they just were looking for a little bit of food. They did nothing wrong. They weren't stirring the pot. They weren't looking for a fight. But in that attempt, they were hurt in an unprovoked way. And so in response, that impulse... Feeling justified, they thought, well, you know what? Those evil people deserve to have fire called down upon them. Now, now think about that. So they were mean to me, so I'm going to destroy you. Now, I want you to think how, how, how foolish this is. You hurt my feelings, so you're going to die. You know, when you and I get wounded, we go Old Testament. We go full-blown Old Testament. Oh, eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. You took one, I'll take two. <laughs> Mess with the bull, you get the horns. You sow that wind, buddy, you're getting a tornado on you. You know, we, we, we quote all these verses a little bit out of context. It's certainly in a different dispensation. But you know, none of that reflects the spirit of Jesus. Amen. It's not reflection of his grace. It's not reflective of the power and potential that resides in you in the Holy Spirit. Matthew 5, verse 38 says, For you have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that, you sh you, that ye resist not evil. <laughs> Let's just stop there for a second. You mean I'm supposed to take the punch? Yep. You're supposed to receive that indignity and be okay with it? Yeah. I, I said this so many times with Paul, but I think we're so confused what Christians are and what we're supposed to be about. 
But I say unto you that you resist not evil. But whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other. We're all not very good at that. I mean, the moment of provocation, you know, in that nanosecond after the provocation, we're already thinking how we can get back at the person who, who got at us. We're not thinking, deploy grace. Be nice back to them. No, we're just ready with the comeback. Right like that. If any man will sue thee at the law and take away thy coat, well, let him, let him have thy cloak also. And whoever compelled thee to go a mile, go with him twain or two. Why would I do that? Because no other response has the ability to potentially save and help what's happening. Anything else just destroys. And every person who would be honest with themselves who's ever been in a fight with a spouse of a person, if you think about it, you know that's true. Every retaliatory comment does nothing but bring down more fire. And sometimes you do nothing but burn it to the ground and you just quit because you're so exhausted. It's not the way of the Christian. 1 Corinthians 6, brothers of the church were fighting. They were going to court, suing each other. The Apostle Paul hears about this. It's a great text. But he says, hey, church, there is utterly a fault among you. He says, why don't you instead just suffer the wrong? I, I, I just can't do that. That's just not how I'm made. That just wouldn't be right. That's just not fair. Well, it's Christian. Jesus gave this example in 1 Peter chapters 2 and 3. He was reviled. And what's the next word say? He was reviled, but he reviled not. He was stricken. He didn't strike back. He was verbally assaulted. He said nothing to return. But he committed himself to God. See, that's what a Christian does. You can hurt me and I can fight you back, but that just burns things. But if I can commit to God and I can be gracious, that gives God space to work. And by the way, it's not bad for my soul either. It keeps it from becoming defiled. Be becoming like the one who just offended me. And when we do something where a miracle might take place, I want you to consider that returning a legitimate evil or hurt with an ugly, bitter, hateful, and reciprocal response doesn't negate the original offense or your own. We say it this way, two wrongs don't make a, and it doesn't. Being right, at least initially, doesn't give you permission to suddenly be wrong. We are no less obligated, Christians, to be kind and gracious when it's hard. <laughs> We're under no less obligation. Um, the absence or subtraction of another person's goodness does not constitute a reason for you to let your goodness go. We are called to absorb injustice. 
That's part of what being the light of the world means. Matter of fact, that's the time that our grace is most magnified in the backdrop of someone else's offense and hurt. This is fascinating to me. In the text, there's two wrongs. There's two wrongs. The Samaritan's wrong and the disciples' wrong. But which one does Jesus rebuke? And there's a reason for that. Because to whom much is given, much is required. See, the sinners are acting like sinners are supposed to act. I'm not diminishing sin, but you know, they're sinners and they do wrong and it's like this. But over here stands the Christian and he does wrong and in God's eyes it's like this. Why? Because the Holy Spirit's in here. And you've, been, you've had some information from the Word of God. And your, your conscience should have convicted you. And you should have cared about the cause of Christ and to save the person who's hurting you to do, offer a different response. So, in many ways, you are more guilty of the greater offense. Hey, it's no fun to be a shock absorber, but it's necessary for the smoother ride for everyone involved. This is the way of the Christian. There's a second temptation to respond poorly. It's that when our hearts is full of passion and zeal. <laughs> Man, the one guy absent here who had been really good, this was Peter. But James and John had enough of their zeal of their own. And, and they were probably honestly upset at the offense toward Jesus. They were probably full of, in a lot of ways, right passion and zeal. These men loved the Lord. They cared about Him deeply. They, they, they knew Him to be the Messiah. And they didn't want Him uh, offended. And here's, here's just a caution for all of us. In this world, is there not much to be offended at? I mean, I, I, I had a chance to probably read more news and watch more news in the last few months, and I think I'm worse for it than better. And much of it turned my stomach. And there's a lot of very godless, ugly, horrible things all around us. And you and I can have a passion for what's right. And you can I say, we're, we're, we're going to champion this. And we're going to be against abortion. And we're going to be against homosexuality. And we're going to be against all these ugly things. And if we're not careful in our rhetoric, and in our conduct, and in our condemnation, in our judgmentalism, in our passion and zeal, we're going to violate our devotion to God. We see this in politics continually. I'm right. You're right. This aisle's right. This aisle's right. And all I can see is a, a bunch of people hurling insults and ugliness to each other, is what I see. And sorting out the writing there so hard for all the vitriol on top of it. There's a lot of people who let this happen to them. Peter's in the garden, the Roman soldiers come, and his zeal, he waxed the Roman's ear. And Jesus says, that's not what we're about. And he puts it on. You know, the Pharisees were incredibly zealous. But it was that zeal and passion for the Word of God that caused them to violate it in time. And totally abandon the love of God. I'm just saying there's a caution that when you're right and passionate about it, then if we're not careful about how we hold that truth, 
as Baptists, independent Baptists, and more importantly as Christians, we're going to say that we hold and claim a truth. But I would beg you, if you hold the truth, hold it in love. Doesn't mean we can't say hard things, preach hard things, and, and, and take a strong stance. You can have a skeleton. It's just better to coat it like in puppy fur than a turtle hide. You know, often the best way to win after an offense is to win the person instead of the argument. Unbridled zealousness, conservatism run rampant, is prone to ungraciousness. I'm going to finish with this. How, how do we avoid this? Well, first of all, the wise thing that James and John did here, they at least ran their response through Jesus. Amen. Lord, would you have us do this? No, I wouldn't. Before you respond, let Jesus stand between you and the other person. Should I respond this way? You're going to get a pretty quick answer right, right away. Would he approve what I'm about to say? No. Does he like what I'm doing? No. Is what you're going to say and do, is it going to, is it going to bring in a repair to the relationship, or is it just going to create a wider divide? Is what I'm about to post on Facebook going to help anything, or just feel, make you feel better because you've proved your point? You know, you in defending yourself or whoever, that's not Christian. There's way too much of that garbage. I got to quit. This morning, I want to ask you to examine your spirit. And I'm going to broaden the application. Today, I ask you to look inside. I want you to think about some of the relationships in your life. Maybe think about the commentary on your social media. You and a family member, you and a church member, you and people at work. And I'm going to ask you, are you okay with all your responses? I want to ask you this today. Is your spirit okay? Is there anybody here with a wounded spirit? Well, somebody actually hurt me. A wounded spirit is hard to bear, the Bible says. Has somebody else's offense made you bitter? See, you've got to deal with that because bitterness in time leads to defilement. Do you have an angry spirit? Because that does nothing but tear down walls. Your own and everybody else's. Do you have an anxious, fearful spirit? You see, all of these, um, we need to know what manner of spirit is in here. And none of those belong there. Not the wounded, not the anxious, not the bitter, not the hateful, unkind, and angry. Those don't belong in here. And they don't belong in yours. David let his spirit get a check. He was hurt and offended. He let it get a check. In, in, in response, David did some incredibly horrible 
um, inexcusable things. It took a prophet to point them out. But when David saw it, he understood. Not only had he hurt others, but that he had, he had been in that process to destroy his own spirit. He described it as, my bones are broken. So he went to God, and he got on his knees, and he asked God to forgive him, and he said this. God, please don't take your Holy Spirit away from me. And Lord, would you renew a right spirit in me? Some of us probably need to pray that prayer today. Lord, I need a different spirit than what's in my heart right now. Lord, Lord would you renew so, so I don't lose what I'm supposed to have in here. Would you renew a right spirit in me?